here for the moms. Yay, moms. We love you. We appreciate you. We thank you. You get this once a year and then back to work. Okay? <laughs> so uh, last week, if you weren't here, we started a new uh, sermon series, kind of a journey we're on together, learning about the church. What does God think of the church? What is the church supposed to be all about? Uh, how do we understand the church? What is the church? Who is the church? Is the church a what or a who? What's the role of the church? Um, how do you know if a church is healthy? Uh, what about the local church versus the whole universal church? All of, these, all of these questions about the church. The fact of the matter is that a lot of times when we use the word church, we're not using it the way the Bible uses it. There's a different connotation in our minds when we think of church. So when it comes to the topic of church, there are a bunch of questions and I'm not going to get all those questions answered today. I'm not going to get all these questions answered in this whole uh, series. But what I would like us to do is I would like us to get on a journey where we begin to really think more biblically about the church and, and where we begin to think honestly about the church, where we don't uh, gloss over, but we look uh, carefully in the mirror and say, what's true about us as Christians? What's happening uh, in our culture, in our society, in our nation. How big of an impact is the church having? Is the impact of the church positive or is it negative or is it negligible? Uh, is the church relevant in our society? We need to look in the mirror a little bit and be honest. There's nothing worse, right? You have something hanging out of your nose or something in your teeth and no one tells you. you walk around all day like that. You think, oh my gosh, I wish somebody would have just been kind enough to tell me, right? That's kind of what we need. We need a good look in the mirror. And, and so part of what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at the church, the whole Christian church really in America, and asking ourselves the question, what's going on with us? What needs to change? What does God have in mind? Looking at, at ourselves, and then we're going to look at the scripture and say, what does the scripture tell us? about all of this, if we want to think biblically and think honestly. There was once a, a man who was uh, hundreds of pounds overweight. He was morbidly obese. It had affected his life in tremendous ways. And his doctor basically told him after some tests, listen, you either need to lose 100 pounds right away or you're going to die. It's as simple as that. You're going to have to do something. And that woke him up. And he went to the store that day and he bought a scale and he put that scale on the ground and he stepped on it and he wrote down the weight and he said, man, that, that weight is going to go down every week. And he went and he got on that scale after a week and sure enough, it had dropped and he wrote down that weight. And after another week, it had dropped again. He wrote down that, week, that weight. Every, every week, it just kept dropping. And he was astonished because it wasn't as hard as he thought. And the weight was coming off after three months. He was down 35 pounds. That's a great start. And three more months went by. He was down a total of 75 pounds. He, he was really rolling every time. Every, there wasn't a week that went by that the number on the scale was not lower than it was the week before. The thing that was weird, though, is that his clothes fit the same. His, his belt was still in the same notch. His pants still felt the same. His shirt still felt the same. 
Uh, but he knew that he was making progress, so he just stayed at it. And every week he got on that scale on Monday morning, just like he had the week before. And every week the weight went down. And it kept happening that way until he had a massive heart attack and dropped dead. That's a nice story, isn't it? (laughs) And when they found him lying next to the new scale, they noticed that the scale was broken. And he had been stepping on this scale every week and it gave him the news he wanted to have. And so he ignored the other signs and he didn't pay attention to the fact that he didn't feel any healthier. He didn't feel any better. His clothes didn't fit any better. His belt was still the same. But the, the scale told him one thing and he believed the scale. I think that too many Christians, especially Christian leaders, um, we look at whatever marks make us feel better about the church, and we don't always pay attention to the things that need work. And I'm talking about in the whole church as well as in the local church. So today we're going to be brutally honest. We're going to look at some markers, and we're going to ask ourselves, how's the American church doing? So just as a spoiler, the American church is failing fast. That's, that's just the bottom line. And, and it, it doesn't really matter how you look at it. There are some things that you can look at and go, well, that looks kind of good. And over here, this looks kind of good. And I heard about this new church over here and they're doing great things. But when you look at the whole picture and you really study it and you look at the research, you realize that the impact of the American church in our culture today is virtually negligible. And we're going to talk about that honestly. Now, I, I know the scale says what we wanted to say. There are more mega churches in America than there have ever been before. Within a 20-minute drive of this place, I'm not going to give you any names because I don't want you to be there next week, but uh, there are multiple churches where there will be thousands upon thousands of people worshiping together today and every weekend. And, uh, and so when you look at that, you see all the churches of 5,000, 10,000, 20,000, 40,000 people in attendance every week, radio programs and television ministries and community impact and all that kind of stuff. You go, wow, the church is really, really making a difference. When I was a kid, there were virtually no churches over 1,000 people. Now we have, we have hundreds of churches over 10,000 people. So the mega churches are everywhere. And guys, you're not going to hear me um, mocking large churches. Uh, I think there are some good large churches and some bad large churches, but I praise God for some of those mega churches that are doing things that small churches could never do. And God is doing incredible things. I'm not an anti-big church guy, but I do want to say this. We need to be careful when looking at the mega church because growth and swelling are not the same thing. And a lot of times what we really see is swelling where one congregation is growing while other congregations are shrinking because this church is offering a program that is more enticing than what that church can offer. So I leave this church and go to that church. And the churches with the most impressive programs tend to be the ones that are growing. But when you count the whole church, it's not growing. Um... Church programs are more polished today than they've ever been before. 
the, the program, what you, what you just were involved in here at Grace Fellowship. The music, the lighting, the sound, the production value. I mean, at a, at a church this size, to experience something like that, aren't you thrilled with the musicians that the Lord has given us in this church and the way that we're able to worship Him musically and all of that kind of stuff? And yeah, cheer for them, yay. But, but on top of that, you guys, that's happening in churches all over the place, right? Production value in churches is so much better than it used to be. I mean, it used to be a dude standing up there with a hymnal in his hand going like this and trying to get us to sing when he couldn't even sing on key. Things have changed, right? And, and so, you know, the, there are programs for kids, programs for youth. This thing at the Beardsley Blitz, you guys, this is unbelievable. A local church is taking its youth ministry staff onto a school campus in the public school and ministering to many, many kids by invitation. Because the church is starting to get a name in the community as a church that cares and is willing to serve and that kind of stuff. That's a phenomenal thing. And there are many churches that are doing amazing things like that. So the programs in churches are better than ever before. But you know what? The church is never meant to be a collection of programs. We, we the church, we have television stations now. Whole stations just devoted. I mean, lists of stations ministries that have private jets and, and publishing companies and, and YouTube channels and all of that kind of stuff. The church is doing more than ever before in that sense. But our culture is becoming weaker and further from Christ rather than stronger and closer to Christ. And that's just a fact. So when we look at all of the resources that we have and all the communication and all the opportunity and all the buildings and all the programs and all the gifted people and you look at our culture and go, what in the world is wrong? Something's wrong. I am stepping on that scale every week and it looks better, but my belt is getting tighter so I ignore the belt and look at the scale. We need to... Look at ourselves, warts and all. So if we're to think about the church, we got to make sure that we're looking honestly, we're looking accurately. And so I'm going to begin today, the, the part of this message is going to be a downer. I'm going to just begin today uh, with some bad news about the church. We're going to look at a report card. According to a Gallup poll, 82% of Americans say that they arrive at their religious views without regard to a body of believers. 82% of people believe what they believe on their own. There, there is no connection to anybody else. All of their religious conviction, their religious life is lived individually, independently, whether they are Buddhist or whether they are Muslim or agnostic or atheist or Catholic or Baptist or whatever they are, 82% of Americans say, the things I believe, I believe because I believe and nobody helped me come to that place and I didn't do that as a part of a group. The body of believers is virtually unimportant in my life. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're not religious, but it does mean that the fellowship of other believers is not a high priority to people in our country. If somebody is looking for a church and you ask them what they are looking for, the number one answer by far without a close second is fellowship. 
The number one thing that people say when they're looking for a church is fellowship. I want those relationships. I want a community that I can get and be a part of and a support system and all that kind of stuff. Everybody is looking for fellowship. Other popular answers include good preaching, good music, uh, good programs, uh, encouragement, all that kind of stuff. People want those things. But the number one thing that people say they're looking for by far is fellowship. And yet 82% of Americans say that a local body of believers has nothing to do with their religious experience. Fellowship, fellowship, fellowship. We love fellowship. We want fellowship. Fellowship is the thing. Did you ever see the movie, The Princess Bride? Greatest movie of all time, without question. Greatest movie of all time. Don't argue with me. Don't shake your head. It's the greatest movie of all time. If you don't believe me, go watch it 75 more times. And when you've seen it as many times as I have, you will know it's the greatest movie of all time. Okay, in The Princess Bride, there is this little short bald guy named Vizzini. And Vizzini has a word that he uses over and over and over and over again. Anybody know what that word is? inconceivable. Everything to Vicini is inconceivable. Whatever he sees, if he wasn't expecting it, it's not just a surprise. It is inconceivable. Everything is inconceivable until finally Inigo Montoya says to him, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. That's what I want to say to people when they talk about fellowship. You keep using that word but I don't think it means what you think it means. And we need to understand better what fellowship is all about. If you ask people what they're looking for in a church, you will almost never hear somebody say, I am looking for a place where it feels like my family and I are a perfect fit, where it feels like the needs in that church are a good fit for the strengths and the gifts that God has given us. I'm looking for a place where I can serve and, and meet needs and fill roles that maybe nobody else is willing or able to fill. I'm looking for a church where I just seem to fit as a place to serve. You almost never hear that. When it comes to church, most of us think like consumers. We're choosing between a number of great options. You guys drove past however many church buildings on your way here today. You have a lot of options. And so we think like consumers. We choose among a number of really nice options based on what meets our needs the best. And for those interested in great preaching and teaching, you guess what? Not only do you not need to come to Grace Fellowship, you don't need to go to church anywhere because all you have to do is log into your computer and all of the great preachers in the world are on there. You could pick your favorite preacher, pick your favorite passage, pick your favorite topic and hear a great sermon any day of the week. So if you're interested in great preaching and teaching, guess what? Good news for you. You don't have to come anymore. You don't have to come. And if you're interested in music and you love music and you love to hear the music and you worship with these worship songs and all that, and you think, man, when I come and, and everybody is singing and the musicians are playing and these new songs that uplift my heart, and I just love the music, I have great news for you. You don't need to come anymore either. Because there's a thing in your pocket called a phone, and it has all of those songs done on it professionally. You can listen to it live. You can listen to amazing bands and big churches. You can, it doesn't matter. If you like the music, you can get it in a moment. And if what you're looking for is great youth and children's programs, I have great news. You don't have to come anymore either. 
Because what we're struggling to do to put together people who love your kids and are building into your kids and all that kind of stuff, sometimes our programs stumble and we don't have all the resources that we want and all that. But you know what? There's the YMCA and there's the boys club and there's boys, well, there's scouts and there's all kinds of various uh, groups that will invest in your kids, right? So if what you are looking for is those things, if you have a consumer mentality as you approach coming to a church, you need to understand something. You don't need to be here. And I realize that that is a really dangerous thing for me to say, but I'm sure it's occurred to all of you before. You don't need to be here on Sunday mornings. And that brings us to this question. Who really needs the local church anyway? According to scripture, the world does. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at what Jesus has to say about this, just briefly. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. This is Jesus' big preaching moment as he's launching the early part of his ministry. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, here's what he says. He's speaking to his followers, to Christians. Here's what he says. You, and and by the way, if you read that in Greek, the word you means you plural as a group. Not you group, not you various individuals, not one individual, but a group of individuals together. He's speaking to Christians as a group. And here's what he says. You, all of you all, are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You, all of y'all, are the light of the world. A city set on a hill hidden, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your all of y'all's good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Apparently, a world that is enveloped in darkness is in desperate need of light. And Jesus says that the church is that light. And that without the church being light to a dark world, the darkness overcomes. And people just live in that darkness. Apparently, the world is desperately in need of the preservative nature of salt. The world is desperately in need to have their, to have their taste buds awaken so that they realize that they're thirsty and they need something to drink. And the world is in this situation. And Jesus says, you, the church, all of us, we together are the salt of the earth. And he goes, you know what happens though? Sometimes salt becomes tasteless. It just loses its saltiness. And then it's no good for anything except to be thrown on the road. He's implying that it is possible for us to lose our saltiness. He says, you don't take a light and put it under a basket. You put a city on a hill. You put a light on a lampstand where the light can shine. He's implying that it is possible for us, the people of God, to take the light that he has placed in us through the Holy Spirit And hide it. And the world continues on in darkness. He says that's possible. So be careful. He says that it's our responsibility to love people. 
to share our testimony about what God has done in our life, about His unconditional love and how we could show that to them through the way that we love one another. So the church is pretty important. But as I said, uh, this consumer mentality is dangerous stuff. Because for church leaders, there's a great number of temptations in a consumer-driven society. One thing we're tempted to do is to water down and pervert the message of the Scripture. We're just tempted to say what people want to hear rather than what they need to hear. And, and I will be the first to tell you that I have ideas and opinions, and some of my ideas and opinions are very strong, and I am undoubtedly wrong in some of those things. But I want to promise you something. This book right here is right about everything. There's nothing that is not true. There is nothing that is not wholesome. There is nothing that is not good. There is nothing that is false in the Word of God. And yet, I am tempted... And every pastor that that has to stand before a congregation every Sunday is tempted to somehow wow people with our stories and our, our tricks and our entertainment and just keep them awake and keep them coming and keep them telling their friends. Because after all, if you get bored every time I stand up to preach, chances are you're gonna stop coming. And if you stop coming according to the way that church success is measured, if you stop coming, I am failing. And if more of you come, I am successful. And if lots and lots and lots of you come so that we have to add three and four and five services and have off-site parking and have shuttle buses bringing people in and the whole world finds out about this amazing church that everybody comes to, then I'm a successful pastor. And I'm going to start getting invitations to speak at national conferences. And and publishing companies are going to come to me and ask me to write a book about how I did it. And very quickly, this bald head of mine just gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it feels good to be the man. And there's a temptation to tell people what they want to hear. People are uncomfortable with Jesus' claim to be the only way to heaven. So why not just water it down, avoid those verses, and talk about the other verses where he says nice things about how he will make your life better. People are uncomfortable with the notion of a literal hell. So let's not talk about sin. Let's not talk about punishment. Let's not talk about hell. We'll water it down and we'll speak as if everybody goes to heaven in the end. Because after all, God loves everybody. And, and if you'll allow me a second, I, I, wish, I, I wish you were all pastors because you don't really need to hear this, but I'm going to make you listen anyways. Um, we pastors have this temptation, particularly at funerals. Part of what happens with pastors is that, is that we get invited on a regular basis to preside over funerals, often for people that we don't know. Sometimes for people that we do know who are not exactly the godliest of people, right? And when somebody passes away and everybody at the funeral knows this guy had nothing to do with Jesus, And the pastor stands up there next to the casket and talks about how he's in a better place today and he's looking down on us with joy. Every time we do that, in order to make people comfortable, which is a good thing, we are unpreaching the gospel. I mean, if in fact Jesus does not require us to be followers of him, 
to accept his free gift of grace, if he doesn't require that he be Lord and Savior in order for us to go to heaven, then why not just take that approach that says every road leads to heaven? There's just one problem. I mean, it'll draw a crowd. Except that Jesus, he just said this one thing. He was like off the cuff. Probably, I don't even know how much he meant it. But he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He said it. It's right there in the scripture. So what are we supposed to do? People are uncomfortable with what Jesus said about suffering and sacrifice in the Christian life. So we preach health, wealth, and prosperity. The most popular preacher in America today has written all these best-selling books. One of them was a bestseller for several years. It's right there on the top of every bookstore bookshelf when you go in. And it was entitled, Your Best Life Now. And, and I just got to tell you guys, if you're a Christian and you've read the Bible and you're hoping this is your best life now, you don't understand the scripture. Because <laughs> we were not created just for time. We were created for eternity. Guys, I promise you, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is not your best life. It gets better. It gets better. But if, if I say that to you, you might grumble and, and become depressed and not want to come around. But if I tell you that this is your best life now and God wants you to be healthy all the time and he wants you to be wealthy all the time and he wants to bless your business as long as you pray the right prayer, then you could be happy and everything's going to be fine. And that fills a room, then we are tempted to preach that message because that sells. People want to hear it. And we don't preach that Jesus said the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And that if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross daily and follow me. And if you follow me, you will be persecuted. We don't preach that because that empties the room. That's our temptation. In this consumer-driven, competitive world of the American church, church leaders are tempted to try to make people feel good than actually help them become good. Our flesh wants to be served, but the Bible calls us to serve God and others. So what message should I preach in this consumer-driven world? We love to receive more and build more wealth and, and have a nicer lifestyle or at least put away something for the future. But the scripture tells us to be willing to forsake everything and that Christ has to become our only focus and everything else has to become um, uh, like dung in comparison. And it, and when I'm fighting for market share with the other preachers out there, what message should I preach? We're all looking for ways to make a buck and get a good deal and get ahead. And the Bible tells us to give sacrificially and consistently in the local church. And man, if a pastor says that, immediately people just shut down and say, ah, oh, another one of these churches asking for money. In this market-driven, consumer-oriented Christian America... One message should I preach? There's a temptation for church leaders to turn church membership into a spectator sport. And we talked about this a little bit last week. To just, to just say, hey, look, if you put some money in the plate, we can hire people to do all the work of the ministry. And then you don't have to actually be a witness for Jesus. You don't have to actually be a servant to others. And you can hire somebody else to do that. And so we're tempted to do that. But see, there's this little thing in Matthew 28. Turn to Matthew 28 real quick. The very end of, the, of Matthew's gospel, 
I told you it was going to be a downer. Stay with me, okay? Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28. Go to the very end of Matthew. And, and this is, we talked about this in Acts chapter 1 last week where we saw it from another perspective, this last little bit of time that Jesus spends with his disciples before he ascends into heaven and he gives them their marching orders. And here's what he said in what has become known as the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. That's our commission. That's what we've been called to be about. Not only are most Christians not personally involved in the Great Commission, but but a very recent Barna survey showed that 51% of American churchgoers have no idea what the Great Commission is. They're not even familiar with the idea. And so that tells me that their pastors are tempted not to teach the depth of Scripture and the foundational nuggets that we need in order to walk with Christ. And on top of that, there's a temptation for church leaders to compete with other churches and, and, and to look for ways to be the better church in the community so that the Presbyterians and the Methodists and the Assemblies of God and the Baptists don't steal all our people. And so there's this competition. We hear the Presbyterians just built a new playground for the kids and young families are just flocking. Boy, we better build a better playground, right? But we heard that the Methodists just started this new, uh, this new youth ministry that's just knocking them dead. Maybe we could hire that youth pastor and bring him over here. And we have this, this competition mentality. Listen, there are thousands, not dozens, not hundreds, thousands of Protestant denominations in America. Thousands. There's probably a hundred kinds of Baptist. We just keep splitting and splitting and splitting and splitting and splitting until everybody's happy in our little camp. And, and that doesn't mention all the independent churches and all the thousands of parachurch organizations that are out there doing good stuff, but everybody's separated. And, and you know what? In the mental model of a, of a market-driven economy, what those leaders are thinking or what we're tempted to think is, how do I compete with the other Christian ministries out there so that I can get my market share? Instead of thinking, how can we link arms so that the kingdom can advance and the city can be lit on fire for Jesus Christ? Those are just a few of the major temptations that churches face today and that church leaders easily fall into. It doesn't take a genius to see that giving into these temptations is not working. In fact, there's a new religious group on the map that everybody is paying attention to. Uh, they're called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, not N-U-N-S. That's a different religious group. But this religious group, the nuns, are, are called nuns because if they take a survey asking what religious affiliation best describes them and they get all these different things, at the bottom of the list there's a box that says none and they check that box, okay? It's the fastest growing religious category in America. In 1990, 8.1% of Americans were nuns. In 2008, that number had risen 90% to 15% overall in just 18 years. 
But that's not the shocking thing. The shocking thing is what it did from 2008 to 2012, the next time they did the survey. Between 2008 and 2012, it went to 19.3%, and today it's believed to be at least 25% of Americans are nuns. And among people under 30, that number rises to between 35 and 40%. That makes the nuns the fastest growing religious category in America and the second largest religious category in America behind Catholics. So this is serious. These are not atheists and agnostics. These are people who simply don't care. They are not interested. They have thought about religion and they have decided not to think about it anymore. They're not looking for a church. They're not turning on Christian television. They're not going to join you for the harvest crusade at Dodger Stadium. Uh, They don't wonder about the afterlife. In fact, if you want to talk to them about your faith, they will immediately put their fingers in their ears and walk away. They are not having the conversation. That's That's a decision they've already made. Not only do the nuns not agree with us, they're not even listening to us. And they're the fastest growing religious category in America. So what does that mean for the American church? Well, we're called to be salt and light. And yet what we're finding out is that many of the people in America, I mean huge numbers, are living in darkness and don't know it's darkness. Not only are they not looking for light, they don't even know they're in darkness because they haven't seen light. See, Jesus said, don't take your light and put it under a bushel. Nobody will see it. And if nobody sees it, they just become accustomed to the darkness. What has happened in the American culture in the last 40 years is that the church has gone under a bushel and people don't see the light. So they're comfortable living in the darkness. They're not even asking about light. They haven't even heard about something called light. And if you talk to them about it, they're not interested. It's not a great report card for the church. At least for the American church. Listen, in Africa, church is exploding. Oh my goodness. You can't believe what the Holy Spirit is doing on the continent of Africa. The millions and millions of people who've been coming to Christ in the last 20 years in Africa, it's astonishing. We have nations in Africa that have gone from 2 to 3% Christian to 40 to 50% Christian in the last 10 years. It's, it's incredible. And you should see what God is doing in China, where Christianity is illegal and it's the fastest growing church in the world. God's just doing incredible things there. But we're talking about America. We're talking about Western culture. And and Europe has already gone from religious to secular. And now they're moving toward Muslim. And And that's happening at a rate where most of Europe, if nothing changes, will be Muslim in our lifetime. America is on exactly the same track. The only difference is, statistically, we're moving faster. They started before us, and we're moving faster. So I want to I illustrate this so you guys kind of get a, a visual picture of what we're talking about. When we think about this, um, the, this box represents uh, the American population, okay? I use a box lid so you'll be able to see, but picture that the walls go up and then everything fits in this box, right? This is the population of America. Right now, roughly 325 million people, depending on 
how many babies were born this week, right? About 325 million people, that's this box, okay? Now, if you do surveys and you ask people to choose a religious affiliation under the big categories, Muslim, uh, Buddhist, uh, Jewish, Christian, etc., here's what we find. This bowl right here, this bowl represents um, those who say they're Christian. It's, it's shrinking. It's shrinking rather quickly, but it's still about two-thirds of the American population that have some... Now, that, that, that heading of Christian on these, on these, um, on these uh, tests, it includes things like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, Catholics and Protestants, any, anybody who claims any affiliation to the Bible or Jesus, right? Now, we know that biblically, not all of those people know Jesus, but this is about two-thirds of the population. That's what it represents, okay? This number is shrinking very quickly in America, Every 10 years and when they do a census, it has dropped dramatically for the last 40 years. So this number is shrinking. This number is growing. The box is growing. The bowl is shrinking. And it's down to the place where it's about two-thirds. Now, if we want to actually know how many people have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, we can never know because I can't judge anybody's heart. You can't judge anybody's heart. And no test that people fill out or survey will judge their hearts, right? But we can use other criteria to figure this out and get a general idea of about what kind of number we're talking about. So the box represents America. The pot, uh, the, the um, bowl here represents um, about two-thirds of Americans who claim Christianity. But for example, despite the fact that nearly 70% of Americans claim a Christian faith, only 33% of Americans believe the Bible is the Word of God. Okay, now we're not talking about do they think it's inerrant? We're, that's a smaller number. We're not thinking about do they, do they, you know, do they actually use the Bible in their daily life? Just do they believe it's the Word of God? Only 30, 33% of Americans say yes to that today. And a recent Barna survey showed that 17% of Christians who, quote, consider their faith important and attend church regularly, okay, only 17% of people who say they consider their faith important and attend church regularly have anything remotely looking like a Christian worldview. So with that in mind, if we want to know how big the actual body of Christ is, we're looking at a cup like this. That's a very small part of the picture. I don't know the number. I don't know the names. But I do know that there are very few people actually having a personal relationship with Jesus and walking with him and showing any fruit of that in their lives. So the box is growing, the bowl is shrinking, and the cup is staying about the same. So in spite of the fact, numerically, so in spite of the fact that so many people are leaving the Christian experience... There's enough people coming to Christ that at least the boat is staying even. Now, did Jesus give us a commission to keep the number even? Is that success? Big box, big bowl, little cup. See, when you think about the number of people who actually take Jesus seriously, it's a, comparatively a very small number. So, I have spent the last X number of minutes um, 
telling you the bad news. I'm going to take the next few minutes and tell you some good news. Turn to Matthew 16. Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who's in heaven. Uh, And I also say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. So that's just a little quick statement by Jesus. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus commends him and says, my Father has revealed this to you, and it's right. And that statement that you just made, that I am the Christ, the Son of the living God, I'm going to build my church on it. And when I build my church, Jesus says, I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church that I build. So we can sit and talk and look at the darkness and the difficulty and the weakness and the mistakes and the problems in the church. But at the same time, let's get an honest look and realize that not all the news is bad. The best news is this. Jesus Christ will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's good news. So there's a couple lessons I want to give you from this, and then I'm going to let you go eat your your Mother's Day lunch. Crucial lessons. Number one, the church is not a building. Let's get this idea out of our heads. How many of us just naturally say, I'm going to church? Or we say, "Um, hey, did you see the Presbyterians down the street built a new church? We think of the church as buildings, right? Or we think of the church as programs, and, and so we need to get that idea out of our head because when Jesus said he would build his church, he was not talking about a building and he wasn't talking about a program. How do I know? Because in the Greek, he uses the word ekklesia for church. And the word ekklesia means a group of people. He says, I will build my group of people and the gates of hell will not prevail against that group. I am going to build a called out, blood-bought, spirit-filled, earth-shaking, world-changing group of people called the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. That's my church. So we got to stop thinking of the church as being a building, an organization. Listen, we are a flock. We are a family. We are a body of believers. We are his church. And as long as there's a remnant, he's going to keep building his church. In the first century, the persecution of the church was so great in the Roman Empire that literally, I'm not making this up, literally, look it up in your history books, Nero, the emperor, took Christians and he would hang them from poles on the street and light them on fire to save money. He lit the streets with burning Christians. 
That was the norm in Rome. On top of that, the whole uh, Jewish group was coming after the Christians at that time, led by a guy named Saul, who later became Paul, the great apostle who wrote most of the New Testament, right? And they were putting people to death under the greatest persecution the world has ever seen of a religious group. Christians, everybody around them was trying to snuff them out. And in that atmosphere, God raised up a mighty world-changing life changing church and that church flourished and grew and blossomed and spread across the known world for the next 200 years until good old Constantine came along and said you know what we should make the church and government one and he put Christianity and the Roman government together and formed the Holy Roman Church as a part of the Holy Roman Empire and he made politicians run the church people who didn't know Jesus People who had no sense of the Holy Spirit or the Word of God, and they took advantage of people and ruined lives, and that became what was known as the church. And you know how long that lasted? It's called the Dark Ages, a thousand years. For a thousand years, the only Christians were these little remnants of people meeting in houses. Everybody else, they were wearing papal garb and, and, and big pointy hats and having long ceremonies, longer than this sermon even, long ceremonies and doing all this kind of stuff and, and taking advantage of the people and that was called the church. But my friends, that was not the church. There was still a church. God was still doing a work among a small remnant of people and that remnant just kept passing on their faith and passing on their faith and it looked bad and it looked bleak and it looked ugly and it lasted for a thousand stinking years until something called the Reformation came along. And the Holy Spirit moved in some guys like Martin Luther and John Calvin and people like that. And they began to preach the actual word of God, salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And people began to get saved again. And they put Bibles in the hands of believers so people could actually read the word of God. And the church just exploded again and changed the world, spread across oceans and reached the entire world for Jesus where there's almost no parts of the world now that have not heard the gospel. That number of people is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and God continues to do a great thing. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus is still building his church. The church is a community and when Peter made his declaration, Jesus said that he would build his church on that, that he's the Christ, the son of the living God and that he would do it with them as a group and that's where we get the statement I made last week that there is no such thing as an individual Christian. So if you think you're going to do Jesus and Christianity and all of that individually, you've got another thing coming. If you don't link arms with other believers, I'm telling you, you will not, you cannot succeed. You cannot grow apart from other believers. You're a part of a tapestry. It's not about you. It's about us. And our variety is our strength. We are the blood-bought church of Jesus Christ. That brings me to the third lesson. The church belongs to Jesus. I am so uncomfortable every time I'll meet somebody and they find out I'm a pastor and they say, tell me about your church. And every time I hear the phrase, your church, I just cringe because I think, Jesus heard that. You know, guys, it ain't my church. Let me be very clear. Grace Fellowship is not my church. I know you can't get rid of me. I know I've been here for three decades and all that, but this is not my church. This church belongs to the one who bought it with his blood. That's not me right? And one of the problems that we have is so often we associate the church with the leader and we think that's his church or her church. 
Guys, there, there's a church that was down in Orange County. It was right in the middle of Orange County. And it was one of the first mega churches in the history of our, of our country. It had 10,000 people in it in the 80s and the 70s. I mean, unbelievable. They built this fabulous building. It's called the Crystal Cathedral. Amazing. So many people came to know Jesus there. I mean, the, the, the preaching there was suspect at times. But, but you know what? I got saved there. And so did a whole bunch of other people. It's unbelievable what God does, right? And, and you know what's happening at that church today? Absolutely nothing. Because that church was led by a guy named Dr. Robert Schuler, who was a great personality and all that kind of stuff. And a few years ago, he died. And that church no longer exists. One of the biggest, most influential churches in the world no longer exists because the leader died. You know what that building is now? Catholic Archdiocese of Orange County. It doesn't exist for the same purposes for which it was originally created. The church belongs to Jesus. It's not my church. It's not your church. It's not even our church. It's his church. And so that's a good thing because when a human leader messes up or dies or retires gracefully, the church doesn't end. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. It's about him. Last thing, I know you're tired. Here's what I'm going to give you. Jesus said his church will prevail. Most of you are apparently asleep. Jesus said... He said his church will prevail. That's what he said. He said, you can bring the gates of hell against my church. And I'm telling you right now, my church will prevail. He promised that his church will rise up. His church will succeed. His church will be a light to the world. His church will be the salt of the earth. His church will prevail. The enemy will attack with everything he has. Do you think that's been happening? But guess what? His church will prevail. Why? Because it's his church. It was bought with his blood. And it is the foundation of all that God is doing. You wonder whether it matters that you're a part of the local church. Guys, it absolutely matters. Because you are God's plan. And there is no other plan. We're not a social club. We're not a community service program. And we are certainly not a building. We are the blood-bought, spirit-filled, earth-shaking people of God. And His church will prevail. Let's stand and pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you that by your grace, by your power, and by the blood of Jesus Christ, we are your church. We thank you, Father, that it's not about us. It's all about you. We thank you that we don't have to somehow make it work, make it happen, strive harder. All we have to do is hold your hand and walk with you and you will take us because you have already gained the victory. So Father, we stand here as your family, as your children, as the people of God, and we say glory to your name. We ask you to fill us with your spirit and use us in powerful ways so that we will no longer ever be under a bushel. 
We will never be trampled underfoot by men because we're tasteless and useless. Father, let them see us and glorify you. That was your son's prayer. It's our prayer as well. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.